1: Right now and Fast, green shoots in a down market. Despite rising rates, stubborn inflation, and a banking crisis, three sectors that are not only surviving, but thriving. Plus, another winner will go inside the numbers at McCormick. Can you still profit with paprika and ground pepper? Later on, Baba break up the Chinese e commerce giant planning to split into six different units. Could this lead to more companies following in their footsteps? I'm Carl Quintanilla in for Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site. On the desk tonight, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, Guy Adami, and Jeff Mills. Guys, nice to be back. Thank you. Have you Carl. Wow,
2: Thanks boy. What here, a Carl. joy. This is our luck.
1: Uh, we got no, some surprising no, no. spots of strength. In these markets today, S&P and Dow closing off their lows of the day, but still both breaking some three-day win streaks. NASDAQ leading the losses down half a percent. Energy, the best-performing sector today and this week, even after underperforming the broader market so far this year. All but one name in the XLE is up today. Some consumer names also holding up despite stubbornly high inflation. Chipotle, Domino's, Darden, all beating the broader market this month. We're going to dive into both those sectors later in the show. But let's start with the real head scratcher, and that is home builders. Even with mortgage rates at 20-year highs, sectors stayed pretty strong. KB Home, Pulte, Lennar, Toll, all up double digits this year. How do you make sense of these seemingly unexpected moves, guys? Is this what you saw happening?
3: First of all, we're in the presence of great. It's like when <laughs> every, every, every time, team. baseball fan Tim, like Aaron Judge. Every once in a while, has to go do like a rehab stint in Double A. So this big star goes down and plays with like the Scrubinos. That's what's going I on might here. I
2: even have to step out of the batter's box and compose myself <laughs> right, here. because I mean, you know I mean, you they, just don't know. We get tongue tied a lot of time. There's apparently 17 seconds or something. Back
3: with, to home builders. With that said, I mean home builders, and we've talked about it on the show. It's the supply demand fundamentals, or the imbalance has been there for a while. So people tried to sell these trying to get ahead of something late last year, and they realize that, wait a second, these are very still strong companies, strong balance sheet. And again, the supply demand fundamentals are in place. Pulte Homes, a week or so ago, made not a 52-week high, an all-time high, DHI within percentage points of it. so despite the underlying weakness in the economy, in the market, the home builders are still a place you can hide out, I think.
2: After the price yeah. numbers today, Tim, you agree? Yeah, well, I, I think there's a bit of a lag effect, and I think there's just not a lot trading, right? The velocity of the industry is down, but but I, I agree with Guy, and Guy's had a great call on this, and if you look, though, I, I'm going to point it more to really what's going on with interest rates. I mean, when we peaked uh, at 420 on the 10-year on October 22nd or 3rd, um, you, you know, you had Lennar basically at a six-month low or two-year lows, and since that point, it's up 49 percent. The other thing I would point to is we actually have seen some construction costs go down. I know it's not you're not seeing it in Home Depot yet. You're not seeing it anywhere you look. But lumber prices are at five year lows. Strand board have you know, come way down. And so when you hear from some of the builders, they're talking about profitability that even if you have a single home family starts down 15 to 20 percent, their EBITDA and their margins are as good as they've been during this run. And I think that's what it is. I still think it's interest rates
1: labor availability be one piece of this but do do I
4: any skepticism coming from anywhere I mean if you think about the home builders versus the last home building crisis right they were just way out over their skis they had so many lots of land they were so over levered the balance sheets looked terrible this is a complete and and the supply demand dynamic was way out of whack fast forward to where we are now it's a totally different story and I think people are so spooked to be in the home builders That now I I, now you can see, all right, well, even though they've traded up, it's not like they're crazy expensive. And maybe maybe rates have peaked. And if that's the case, then you generally want to buy them before they actually, Mm -hmm. you know, rates will be down six months from now. And that's maybe where they're looking at.
2: What about bank lending, though? I mean, we, we get to a place where, you know, there's so many different interpretations. I know we're about to have a, a bank discussion. So, But but if you think about lending and think about where mortgage standards have gone, and, and do you think that banks are going to be putting out more mortgages? Do you think they're going to be taking on more risk here? I, I don't think this helps. And, and again, I, I'm... As much as I'm pointing out that this move has been massive, this is not a move I'm chasing. It's not a move that I think is really that sustainable. I don't think the consumer is getting stronger in the next six to nine months to go out and buy that house. And I don't think rates go down that much.
1: Jeff, I wonder if the profile of the winning home builder is changing because of remote work, uh, because of what may or may not happen to commercial real estate and people's ability to telecommute. I mean, is the toll sort of urban center home builder going to be a winner again?
5: I think it's more price demographic than anything else. I mean, if you look at the demographics of the United States, for example, you have that prime home buying age somewhere around 30, 31, 32. That's the biggest cohort of our population. So when I think about what home builders might do the best, I think it's that mid to lower end, the Dr. Hortons of the world guy mentioned it. Um, But I am a little bit skeptical. So we're in this, and Tim mentioned it relative to interest rates. So we're in this kind of Fed pivot window, it's right before the Fed pivots, sort of during it and then right afterwards where you often see a bump in housing data, a bump in home builders. The question is what happens after that? Do you have the proverbial soft landing or do you go into a recession? So my guess is the economy continues to deteriorate some and that's going to be a drag on the builders, you had that huge rally up forty percent, right to seventy in the home builders ETF. Uh, that's clear resistance. It failed there, so that doesn't make me feel great. But the one thing I will say, and I was saying this a lot last year, you know, rates probably have peaked, so I think that's good to some degree. But if you look at the history of home builder performance, they do the bulk of their underperforming prior to recessions. Even in two thousand and eight they outperformed the S&P 500 during the actual recession. So, I think you take some comfort in that. You might see some volatility here going forward, but the bulk of the underperformance actually might be behind us.
1: I wonder how much of that analog makes sense, given that the balance sheet profile of the American household is a lot different mm-hmm. than it was coming out of 08, right? Well,
3: is it better or is it worse? I mean, that's really what you have come down. I mean, we talk about it on this desk, credit card debt now, either side of a trillion dollars. So people will point to the balance sheets looking better. And maybe on a certain metric, yes, certain metric, you know, we talk about credit and how it's over the skis people are. trillion worth of debt out there in the consumer world is not a particularly good thing, especially with rates moving the way they are. So there's that aspect. I get what Tim is saying. You don't want to chase these. It's an interesting dynamic in terms of a trade. All these stocks are going to report on or about April 20th to the 23rd. They're all going to probably, I think, trend back up to those all-time highs we made December of 21. That's when you pull the ripcord. And if you're really aggressive, that actually might be the time to start shorting these things as well.
6: we
2: say all the time that we think the labor market is a lagging indicator. We're all here on this desk saying we haven't really even seen the impact of the Fed. It's hard for me to believe that the housing market gets stronger when, if anything, under the surface, some of these last rounds of job numbers we've seen, by the way, have been incredible. Um, I, 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 again, I think the move from interest rates and to a, a sense, Karen, you say the Fed's peaked. I think they've peaked. I mean, I think we've largely seen as high as the 10-year can go, but I don't think it goes a lot lower. I don't think you're going to see those home mortgages getting back to those places where people can flip around.
1: Can you slice and dice single family, multifamily? I was looking at the spread between yeah. apartment rent and, and right. a mortgage, right? It's a
4: 15-year high, something like that? Yeah, I don't. I mean, I would have thought that would have moved more, actually. But I guess, you know, it takes time. Um, it's interesting, you know, rates during the 08, 09, this is where rates were. This is what, mm-hmm. I mean, we, we were used to zero rates and think now this is insane. It's not insane. It's where we've been on average for 30 years. However, home prices were lower then. Probably also there were too many homes, but (laughs) um, so there's that. Um, So I'm not long them either, but I do think the setup isn't bad. Um, They're not over their skis. And um, I I think I actually am in Zillow. It's sort of an asset light way to play the home space. Right, right. Well,
1: from uh, mortgage rates to banks, the Senate
4: Banking Committee today grilling regulators
1: on the Silicon Valley collapse. Federal Reserve Vice Chair Michael Barr described the final hours leading up to that bank's demise.
5: That morning, the bank let us know that they expected the outflow to be vastly larger uh, based on client requests and what was in the queue. A total of $100 billion uh, was scheduled to go out the door that day.
1: For some insight into the day's biggest revelations, let's bring in Chris Whalen, of course, who runs Whalen Global Advisors. Chris, great to have you back. Um, Hey, Carl. I've heard some discussion today that maybe today's hearing gave us a little more transparency than we were expecting. Uh, Were you surprised?
7: No, I was happy, actually, to hear uh, Vice Chairman Barr talking about some of the details. I think it helps the public understand what's going on. But, you know, that number, $100 billion in a day, that illustrates how fast a bank run can actually move compared to the old days when we had to count the money. Um, And I think it also shows why regulators, the FDIC, were caught flat-footed. They didn't even have a chance to sell the bank. They had to stand up a bridge bank. So... You know, the velocity of change in our market today is, I think, the biggest factor we face, both as investors and risk managers.
3: Wells, listen, I mean, I said it on the show a couple weeks ago and I was corrected. I said maybe if Silicon Valley Bank were under the auspices of the bank stress test, it wouldn't have happened. As it turns out, they yeah. would have passed the stress test. So the stress tests, yeah. by definition, are flawed. So how can we trust the regulators? How can we trust the stress test? Because they were stressing against a problem that we had. 15 years ago, not obviously the interest rate problem that, by the way, I think yeah. you believe, as I do, the Fed created.
7: Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, it, it's kind of ironic. The Fed would have to use some themselves as the, the economic narrative of the stress test, right, Guy? Which would be kind of fun. Uh, last battle, of course, 2008, was about credit. Credit is coming, by the way, to your earlier discussion. It'll be here in about two quarters. We're just normalizing credit now. Because the Fed pushed up asset prices, so it was hard to lose money on a bad loan, even autos during COVID. My God. So credit's coming, uh, but this is market risk, like you say. And I think there's two things. One is the regulators were not looking at their own data, which would tell you the differences in these business models. Silicon Valley Bank was a hedge fund, you know, plain and simple. And I think they're gonna get prosecuted or, you know, sued by the FDIC as receiver. Uh, whenever there's a loss in the receivership, they go after the officers and directors, and they should. you know.
8: Chris,
4: it's Karen. Thanks for being on. What do you think is going to happen with First Republic? Sort of, we're in like a dead zone of not a lot of information, which is surprising, given that there's probably a lot going on underneath the surface.
7: I think they were probably one of the weaker asset gatherers, I call them, the people in the advisory business that happened to own a bank. Um, They were also a big issuer of jumbo mortgages, which is why J.P. and the other larger banks came to their rescue. They don't want to see a a jumbo issuer go down. That would be bad. So they could easily get bought. It's not that big of a bank. The top four are not in the game. So when you think about somebody buying First Republic, it's going to be the next group down, which to me anyway is the most interesting group. You know, PNC, Schwab, U.S. Bank, of course, Truist. These are banks who can go out and buy stuff, Uh, but the top four, no, they're in the penalty box forever.
1: You know, Chris, there was a lot of discussion today about the revelation of those 10 largest accounts uh, at Mm -hmm. SVB. Uh, Do you think that's going to turn out to be a a political hot hot spot?
7: Look, when a bank has a deposit concentration, they are allowed to go back to the regulators and mitigate that concern and say, look, this is a good customer. For example, a mortgage lender, where you take care of their cash, you lend them money for warehouse. It's a very sticky relationship. They're not going anywhere. But if you have large customers who are worried about payroll, and they see, you know, Uncle Sam paying four percent for T-bills for ninety days, that's a more difficult conversation. How can you keep them? You know, average bank funding cost today is about one and a half, maybe a little more, depending on the bank. So right now we have a price problem. Last time we had T-bills and Fed funds above bank deposit rates was when Paul Volcker was chairman and he was shooting uh, SNLs and other non-banks. So that's kind of where we are.
1: Chris, we'll talk again soon. I have a a feeling. Good to see you, uh, Chris. My pleasure. Uh, Jeff, what do you think of the space overall?
5: Well, I think right now one of the most interesting things is, you know, can we get clarity on any new regulation and what size banks is it going to apply to? I mean, if you look at just macroeconomically the impact Banks that are $250 or less, they account for 50% of the lending that goes on in this country. So even if regulations aren't right around the corner, I think they're clearly going to pull back. And maybe from a broad market perspective, you know, SBB failed, what, three weeks ago? You've seen no changes to 2023, 2024 earnings estimates. I think analysts are sort of in this wait-and-see mode, but... At the very least, I think estimates for financials need to come down, just given these tighter lending standards, the slowing economy. They're a large contributor to the overall index. So I think when earnings estimates already needed to come down, I think this only makes it worse. So it's just an additional headwind, not only for the economy, but for the broad market.
1: Yeah, uh, part of the earnings pressure that we were talking about, even in the early days of uh, SVB. By the way, speaking of banks, got some breaking news on J.P. Morgan's Jamie Dimon. Eamon Javers has that for us tonight, Eamon.
9: Carl, that's right. The Financial Times is reporting that Jamie Diamond Jamie will testify under oath in the case involving the relationship between J.P. Morgan and disgraced financier Jeffrey Epstein and sex trafficking. What the Financial Times is reporting is that that testimony will take place sometime in May. It will be under oath. The bank had resisted uh, for a long time in this case, uh, a Dimon individual interview on this and also resisted turning over additional documents. Both of those now will happen. Uh, The big question here, Carl, is what did Jamie Dimon know about all of this in the lawsuit so far? Emails have surfaced which indicate that at least some people inside J.P. Morgan believe that Diamond was going to review the Jeffrey Epstein accounts uh, as early as 2008. Je- uh, Jeffrey Epstein stayed inside the bank for years after that. J.P. Morgan, however, has denied that Diamond had any knowledge of reviewing those accounts back in 2008. So presumably he will be put to that question uh, in this on-the-record testimony now of what did he know and when did he know it about the bank's relationship with Jeffrey Epstein. Carl, back over to you.
1: Uh, Eamon Javers, Eamon, thanks. Karen, yeah. I don't know if you have thoughts about that, but certainly J.P. Morgan is yeah. going to be the, our first look on the 14th in terms of bank earnings.
4: Yes. Um, just one thing about that. I mean, Jamie Dimon, I love Jamie Dimon. It's Karen's Dimon. I think first look, yeah, by the way. And Sorry. I think he's the most <laughs> extraordinary <can> <laughs> executive in financial services. So anything that could yeah. potentially taint him is bad. Right, um, but, but J.P. Morgan also is going to be really interesting to hear what they think of the economy, what they think of banking, what their lending is, and what did they take in in deposits? What are they going to do with it? They must have just gotten a deluge of money, and what did they do with it?
1: Well, watch that.
3: Yeah. Okay, when did they say that uh, test? When is when, that going to take place? Sometime in where? In June? No, I thought it was in May. Oh may. And the folks at JP Morgan say, may that day never come, because they (laughs) clearly don't want that. (laughs) And listen, real quick, the XLF, because we mentioned it, I mean 37% of it is Berkshire Hathaway, JP Morgan, Visa and MasterCard, and it's not trading particularly well. You go back to right before COVID hit, it was 29 and a half. That was resistance on the upside. We've traded down to 29.5 and bounced, but I gotta tell you something, you start getting through there on the downside, then you have to start questioning what's going on in the broader market, I think.
2: Well, I, I just think if you look at where banks are trading now, we've seen whether it was around COVID, whether it's different moments in time, whether it was, we were implying that there was credit write-offs that we had to put in there, banks will trade off first and then they will figure it out. Going into earnings in, in a week and a half to two weeks, not a terrible setup, except for the fact that I don't think we recover from this overhang. You look at the way the KRE trading, even though the money center banks are in a totally different place, we have to hear about the cost of deposits going up. Those NIMS are coming down, even though rates stay high. Um, there's a trade in the short to medium term. We still haven't gotten to the credit crisis yet. And, and that's the part that I think they really get marked down. I think there's a trade in banks after earnings. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, well, that'd be a
1: classic earnings season where the banks start yeah. out on a bit of a sour note. Coming up, we've got some after hours action in Lulu and Micron, a Micron higher, but Lulu surging after beating on the top of the bottom line. We'll get details from both quarters coming up next. Plus, a spicy trade for your portfolio, shares Ooh. of McCormick Ooh. after Ooh. earnings. Uh-huh. Is it That's time to region. throw this one in the mix? Don't go anywhere more fast in two. <laughs> Welcome back to Fast Money. Lululemon shares after hours. The athleisure brand beating estimates on both the top and the bottom lines. Conference call is underway. Our Pippa Stevens has more. Hey, Pippa.
10: Hey, Carl. Well, shares are up more than 11% following the fourth quarter beat. Comparable sales were also ahead of expectations, coming in at 27% versus the forecast of 23.9% adjusted gross margin down slightly to 57.4%, although that was ahead of estimates. Now, the company's inventory was up 50% at the end of last year relative to 2021, standing at $1.4 billion. However, that was an improvement from the third quarter. Now, it really seems to be the guidance that's driving the stock. The company expects revenue for the full year to be between 9.3 and $9.4 billion ahead of what analysts were expecting. There were a lot of concerns heading into this report, So the upbeat guide does seem to be alleviating some fears. Now, beyond clothing, just now on the call, the company pointed to a challenged at-home fitness space, saying mirror hardware sales during the holiday season were below expectations. Lulu said it will pivot away from the hardware-centric business. To instead, Carl, focus on the app-based model. Those shares up 12%.
1: Uh, Pippa, thanks very much. Karen, are they uh, digging out? You think with this with this report?
4: I mean, there was a lot to like there, and often you know you have one quarter and a bad quarter and another bad qu- quarter right after that. This was hardly that at all. The inventory, as you talked about, was one of the deep concerns. The gross margin. I mean, they just beat on every metric. It also, it seems like they beat a lot on this quarter, and this was as much of it as they raised the whole year. So I think there's some sandbagging in there as well. So. All that's great. It's a premier name for sure. Deserves a premier premium kind of multiple, but too rich for me. At, I think it's 358 mm. last, which is up 38 bucks. Uh, Jeff, Genu- you obviously
2: work out. I mean, you, you wear the. You wearing, I'm, wearing, just I'm wearing? You can tell. Yeah. I mean, uh, Jeff, when you string together
1: uh, PVH, uh, Nike's inventory, now this. I mean, can we create a thread about the consumer, at least the high end?
5: Yeah, and I think that's generally been the consensus, right? It's either you want to be low-end dollar store or high-end in the Nikes, Lulus, the really strong brands. You know, I thought Lulu could go to that 350 360 plus a few months ago. I felt very wrong. I was sort of ready to throw in the towel there. But uh, to Karen's point, now that I think you've seen that move, there are a couple of issues, I think, that concern me going forward. And one is... You've had a lot of this excess savings that we always talk about. That accrued to the high-end earners. I've seen estimates that that could be gone over the next one to two quarters. I think that ends up being a headwind. And then, of course, the labor market. And I still think some of those high-paying jobs in tech, finance, you know, they're at risk. And then you have the severance packages for the folks that have already been let go. They're going to start to roll off soon. So I think that combination ends up being uh, a headwind as well. And I don't hate the stock here, but as, as uh, our friend Carter likes to say, you know, I think it's probably a pair of twos from a technical standpoint. You know, it looks OK. Uh, I know it's a lot lower than the stock is now, but I think 265-ish probably defines your downside.
1: Interesting. Got another earnings alert tonight. This one on Micron. is seeing a lift after the company did say it is seeing improving supply and demand conditions. Our Christina Parts of is listening in on that call. Hi, Christina.
0: Hi, Carl. Well, the $1.43 billion inventory write-down was definitely larger than expected and impacted operating margins by 39 percentage points. It was actually the first item addressed by Micron CEO on the conference call, which is underway still right now, who said inventory should gradually improve in the months ahead with days of inventory outstanding peaking in Q2. For context, we're currently in Q3 at this moment. For business segments, though, the company says data center revenue actually bottomed in fiscal Q2, but forecasts PC unit volume to decline by mid-single digits. Keep in mind, Micron gets roughly about 50% of its revenue from smartphones as well as PCs. Gross margins, though, big concern there. It's going to take a hit this year for four reasons. Pricing challenges, a write-down in inventory, which we talked about, costs of underutilization since they're reducing wafer starts, and a higher mix of NAND memory chips. The CEO warning right now on the call, quote, the profitability levels in the industry today are simply not sustainable. So the demand and supply environment has to improve in the industry. Shares, though, are up over uh, when last I checked over one percent. And it seems like investors like that Q3 revenue is projected to be in line with estimates.
1: Christina, so, thanks. Uh, let's trade it. I'm looking at data center, PC, mobile, auto. Uh, how do you put these all together?
2: I think you're, you're waiting still for that whole inventory and the ASP decline that's been going on for these key end markets uh, to, to start to turn. And, and in fact, and, and the chart has actually started to turn. I actually think the chart looks a lot more interesting than the fundamentals, but that's what you do in the semiconductor space. You tend to be buying six to nine months in advance of that cycle turn. And I think that's what we're doing. I'll just point out quick on the market today, too. Semis underperformed. And I, I, you know, my allegory for the market is, is the market will continue to outperform as long as semis. Uh, this chart looks interesting, though.
1: Is it enough to ratify the move that uh, chips have had last few weeks? Not, No. I mean, it's a disastrous
3: quarter if you look at it. But to Tim's point, I mean, I think what the market is saying, basically, we've gotten back what we lost today just for context in terms of the gains we're seeing now, although now I see it's unchanged. But people are saying it can't get much worse. I mean, if you look at operating income, I mean, it's a $2 billion loss. The street was expecting $700 million loss. I mean, if you look at margins, negative 56.2 percent across the board, It's not good. But I think there's this realization, and Tim talks to this, you buy these stocks when they look the worst, and you hope they go from really bad to just bad, and then you get the pop in the name. But I think you got to let this thing play out a little bit now because the numbers are just not particularly strong.
1: Yeah, especially with their comments on, on mobile and smartphones for the year. There's a lot more to come on Fast Tonight. Here's what's coming up next. A trade with some kick. McCormick delivering some real zest in its earnings report. So is this stock set to spice up your portfolio? Plus, breaking up is hard to do. But not when you're Alibaba. The Chinese tech giant splitting
7: up its businesses. And the move has investors flocking in. What the shakeup could mean for your money, ahead. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ
1: market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. Welcome back to fast money shares of spice maker McCormick topping the tape today jumping nearly 10% after beating earnings estimates for Q1 reaffirming its full year guidance. CEO Lawrence Curzia spoke with us today about his outlook for food inflation
3: our cost inputs go up we're going to have to pass that on. Um, you know for McCormick uh, I think you know one of the things that was good news uh, for uh, investors on the call was that
1: for the most part uh, we've got our pricing for this year uh, done still underperforming the broader market this year. But can the stock spice up your portfolio? Wow. Yeah, that's good. Uh, Guy, we tried to press him. He says he's got about, they've done about 80% of their pricing for the year, he thinks.
3: Yeah, it's an expensive stock. I don't think you have the EPS growth, in my opinion, to justify trading close to 30 times or so next year's numbers. But you have momentum behind it. The stock has underperformed, to your point. People playing a little catch up here. So this can last. But at a certain point, I think valuation is going to get in your way. So does it stop? I think it's at 81 bucks here, maybe you get to 85, 86, but then you have to say, too rich in this environment, I think. We're still in a pretty significant downtrend.
4: Did you say catch up with that, up. Like a that joke? I didn't. I no. didn't. No. Wow. i just throwing That's it catch. out
3: there. By the way, we talked about this on the I did throw it out there, though, didn't I? <laughs> we talked about it on the call. Spice up your portfolio. Yes. And then Q just reads his stuff like it's nothing. It's fantastic. <laughs>
4: right. Right? I mean...
3: Are you it,
2: taking, uh, you're taking credit
4: for credit? No, that I'm, I'm not, not taking you, anything, you, Tim. No, it's you, a
3: team
2: game. Well, I, okay?
3: There's sounded no like guy
2: there was an I in the word Adami. Anyway, Karen, please. Well, then
4: there's no I in Tim or me and Seymour, right? No. Never. You know, this. This is a, as the guy said, it's expensive stock. Um, I mean, that Cholula acquisition seems like it was a really good one. I think they did another. I mean, they're a serial acquirer, not cereal um, as in. <laughs> what, what is but going on? I don't know. It's just I don't know. Um, <laughs> it's a little a little rich for me. Um,
1: Jeff, he tried to make the argument that the cost of eating out is so exorbitant that they are actually solving part of the inflation problem for households.
5: Yeah. Well, I think that's part of the argument for owning the stock. I think it's more of a macro call at this point than anything fundamental relative to the company. I mean, clearly it's a counter cyclical business. So you have that argument. Maybe people stop going out as much they're cooking at home. Uh, That could help in the near term. And I think because of that, you could actually see some outperformance in the stock and stocks can stay expensive for uh, a very long time. And I think that might end up being the case with this one. I would let it settle in some here. I mean, I think this move is Uh, a little bit too big in the near term here. But I think it comes in. And again, people do end up staying home. I think the macro economy continues to slow down and people are going to rotate back to defensives. If you look at staples overall, they've been thrown out for the first part of this year. I do think that that reverses out over the next couple of quarters. Investors look to hide in names like this.
1: Yeah, they've, they've had a couple of good days the uh, last couple of weeks. Uh, coming up, a baba break. It's a six-way split for the Chinese tech giant, and investors are loving it. What the restructuring might mean for the business empire. Plus, energy leads the S&P today, and options traders are taking notice how they're playing the space when fast money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Another check on the markets today. Stocks did close lower as rates continue to climb. Dow and S&P down about a tenth of a percent, breaking three-day win streaks, and the tech-heavy Nasdaq leading those losses falling nearly half a percent. Shares of Walgreens jumping nearly three percent after delivering results today. Company posts a beat on the top and the bottom line, but they cite a sharp decline in demand for COVID tests and vaccines. Alibaba surging more than 14 percent after the company announced it will split into six separate companies, each with the ability to raise outside funding and explore going public. The company says in a statement the split is aimed at unlocking shareholder value and improving competitiveness, coming on the heels of this regulatory crackdown in China to curb the tech giant's sprawling influence. Jim wasn't a
2: fan of the overall reach out by China to the business community. What do you think of this move? When, when China talks about unlocking value, it's really hard to believe them. And, and in fact, you know, they wiped $600 billion off the market cap of this company. And it's with some irony, some coincidence that Jack Ma returns from his weekend at Bernie's. Um, and, and suddenly there he is. You know, so um, I, I get the message. I feel like I remember the night, Karen, I, we were sitting on the desk when the, when the Ant Financial IPO was scrapped. Um, And that was the peak, and that was at $293 on the stock. So I get it, and and I I know we're gonna have a really interesting conversation on the whole concept of spinoff, so I'll leave it for that. But I I think, you know, there's no question some of the parts, um, there's always been a lot of value here. In fact, you you got Ant for free when you invest in this company. this is great news to me. This is a, a wait and see moment um, for China to suddenly say, when you consider where we are on the geopolitics of megatech to say, come do it. If anything, Tencent to me is more interesting.
1: Huh. I mean, the, 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 the argument is that they are under the gun on TikTok, under the, gar, under the gun on chip restrictions. And this is one way to push back. Right. Say we're, we're, we're here. We're developing a business friendly environment.
4: I guess. I'm not really sure. I mean, how, how, how is this going to work out? How do they actually do it? Do they split them all up at one time? Do they do it individually? I don't know. And how do they decide? I, I'm, I'm confused, actually. But I do think you have to think, all right, this is a, uh, I mean, tensions were running high there, of course. The ant- that took us by surprise. And then it just got worse and worse. I think this may be the bottom of the sentiment. But all that having been said, can't own it.
3: Tim talked about the low. This was Halloween of 2020 when Baba was a $315 stock. I mean, since then, significant downtrend. But along the way, probably 10, 35 to 50 percent bounces along the way in a stock that's still pretty significantly lower than the all time high. I think we're in the midst of one of these again. So this news cycle will last until they say something to the contrary. But I think you have a window of opportunity here to stay along the name.
1: Uh, let's get more on the split with uh, Jim Osmond, founder and chief executive of The Edge Group. Uh, Jim, to Guy's point, I mean, how many times do we need to get a, a narrative from uh, at least Chinese regulators only to have it thrown in our face? You trust this?
6: Well, the, whether I trust it or not is beside the point. I mean, the, the fact that they're looking to create value for shareholders is, uh, is a very real proposition. Um, so, we're all used to growing up in the last 10, 15 years with the idea that IPOs are great things to buy. But actually, on the face of it, yes, I'm happy about the value creation. Um, I think it gives a catalyst for other um, big tech um, like Meta and Amazon to split up. I think that's very important. Um, but, but on the contrary side, I think the message for investors here really is stay away from IPOs. They're purely manufactured. And actually, you know our, our, our uh, research shows that the actual profitable amount of ipos has been decreasing year on year so from a peak of 2000 in in, nine, in 2009 81% of ipos made money post their uh, post their listing now bring that back to last year 25% of companies were profitable after ipo so actually this is not the right way to go and i want to make the distinction between an ipo and a spin off
3: Jim, I'm a big fan of your work, and, you know, you talk about the unhidden value in some of these spinoffs, and we talk about it all the time. CMG out of McDonald's years ago, PSX was a spinoff, and Organon is one of those out there spinoff out of Merck. I mean, there's a long list of these things, these hidden gems that people just discard. Meanwhile, if they understand what's going on, there's a huge opportunity for them. Can you speak to that?
6: Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I spoke at a conference recently and um, and someone says, well, Jim, if these are so great and it's a great place to look for investors, and it really is, then um, why doesn't everybody do it? Well, the answer is, is is actually age old. No one wants to do the work. So, you know, it takes a lot of work because here's the difference, Guy. With the IPO, there's a, there's a marketing gear to sell you an investment. Now, on the back, of that, it's not right. Valuations are aimed towards the higher end. Um, they have one price they want to sell you, they restrict you from averaging in. Um, there's lockout periods, and the investment is designed to benefit the seller. So contrast this to the spin off, where, let me tell you in a, in, a, in a couple of lines, it's a fundamentally inefficient method of distributing stock to the wrong people. So, with that inefficiency comes opportunity. So that's why I'm a fan of, like you say, spin off some more value creation um, rather than IPOs, which I'll just sold to you.
1: Do you think this portends any kind of repair to the IPO window later in the back half of this year? Let's say.
6: I, I, I'm not so sure, Carl. I mean, like I say. It's, it's an interesting period in the market because historically what we've seen and, and I said this late in the year 2001, a lot of spin-offs happened at the top. A lot of spinoffs happen at the bottom now, and a lot of IPOs just happen at the top. Why? Because you have fully funded, fully funded companies ready to be offloaded to you, the investor. Because I want you to pay the highest price. Sadly, so at the bottom of the market, well, can I sell that investment to you? No. Can I um, can I spack it to you? We know what happened with spacks. Um, and, and, and can I just get rid of it to another firm? No one wants to buy them. So do I want to IPO the bottom market? No. So that's why you're seeing a lot more spin-offs, i.e., by distribution, uh, along big companies coming up, such as Kellogg's, who are breaking up, um, such as uh, Johnson & Johnson, uh, and such as Danaher, and 3M, who you, who you well know. Right.
1: Do you sense, Jim, uh, an underlying hunger or bid for new issues uh, just, just because investors are in search of new ideas, period?
6: No, I don't. I think IPOs certainly have collapsed historically in the last couple of years because there is no appetite. But what really is, and if I'll be so bold as to say, what investors should be looking at is the spin offs because, you know, all the regular um, mainstream investors have got uh, uh, stocks like Kellogg, have got stocks like Danaher, have got stocks like 3M. And what they're going to appear, oh, sorry, what's going to appear on their accounts in the next few months are stocks that they never heard of. And it's the spin offs because they get them by distribution. So I want to tell those investors to look very, very carefully uh, uh, those um, extra stocks that they have when they wake up in the morning and not just sell them because that's the natural thing to do when you don't know, but actually research a little bit more or find someone to research and ensure that they may keep that. Because some of these stocks are done very well. You know yourself, um, uh, you know, uh, even Novartis is spinning off of their top generics business as well. So a lot of these ones, even Otis, who you'll be familiar with, and Carrier from Raytheon. Carrier, right. Otis uh, spun off a couple of years ago, up 65%. Carrier up 200%. You know, these are stocks that people would have got but would have sold. That's
1: a great point, Jim. Uh, really interesting wrinkle in the market right now. Thanks for your time. Good to see you. Thank
6: you. Uh, Jim you. Je- Thank
1: Jeff, you. I think it kind of speaks to the broad problem we've been talking about for a long time, and that is that stocks are under-understood, under under-researched, undercovered. Um,
5: Yeah, and that's where I think the value gets unlocked with some of these spinoffs, clearly. And I'm just sort of thinking out loud here. And Jim's point is really well taken regarding spinoffs versus IPOs. But I wonder you know the historical window that we're looking at basically capital is free zero interest rates companies going public that probably shouldn't and wouldn't in another regime you know does that change here a little bit going forward now that capital has a cost again fundamentals matter uh, i'm not making the argument that ipos are better than spinoffs or vice versa i'm just wondering whether the past 10 or 12 years is indicative of what we're likely to see in terms of ipo performance going forward so just something worth considering
1: Tim, does playbook interest you? Do You got
2: names that, that would follow a playbook like this? I, I think it's fascinating. I, I think look no further than GE also as a company that really has benefited from this whole thing. I mean, the spin-off of GE Healthcare, uh, you've got their aviation business coming out. You've got the, I mean, you've got different things going on. And, and Guy mentioned the restaurant industry seems to be, I mean, how about Yum and Yum China? Remember when Yum China was the growth engine and in fact, Yum has actually been the one that's been outperforming. I think Tencent, by the way, as you, know, you speak of what's going on with Alibaba, Tencent has gaming, has SaaS, has has fintech, uh, and has social media. And if you believe that you can do that in China with one company, I think 10 cents a better story. All right,
1: coming up tonight, uh, energy standing strong amid this market volatility. And the option pits are fueling up the action in one major player coming up. And
0: throughout March,
1: we are celebrating women's heritage. Here's the CEO of Lincoln Financial.
0: As women, we all know that we are always prioritizing whether it's at home, in the office, and in our communities, and it is constantly changing. Sometimes work wins, and sometimes life wins. And it's important also that your company, or wherever it is that you work, understands that. So listen to your needs, and commit to the choice that you make, and if you decide to take downtime, make sure that you shut completely off and give yourself the time to recharge.
1: Welcome back to Fast Money. We continue our deep dive into the market. Surprising bright spots with a look at energy. The top performing sector in the SP today at more than a percent. Oxy leading the gains as Berkshire again upset stake. Options traders are betting there's plenty more room to run. Mike Code joins us with the action. Mike, what'd you think today?
11: Hey, uh, hiya, Carl. We saw about 1.7 times the average daily call volume in Oxy today. The busiest contract were the weekly 62 strike calls. We saw over 16 and a half thousand of those, representing about 1.6 million shares, trade for about 82 cents a contract. Buyers obviously betting that the rally we saw today could extend through the end of the week. And we also saw some longer dated call buying as well.
1: Do you think the thesis behind this is continued improved action in the commodity, or is this a, is this a Buffett chase?
11: Yeah. So it's interesting that you mentioned that because this was definitely amongst the energy names, the one that saw the most extraordinary volume. So there's two things going on here. Of course, we saw that Cowan upgrade. I think that played into it. The stock's been hard hit recently. Of course, the fact that Berkshire is acquiring it is also positive. But I will say, despite the fact that the volumes and the other names were a little bit more muted, overall in the energy sector, the flow was bullish today. Right.
1: How does it compare to Chevron's other names in the space?
11: Yeah. So, I mean, that, that's uh, interesting. You know, the Chevrons and Exxons, the big integrated names, you know, those are basically prox- proxies for their uh, reserves. You know, in the case of some of these other names, Marathon Petroleum, by the way, I just want to give that a special mention because that was another one that saw some bullish activity today. You know, some of these are a little bit more specialized and also oftentimes trade at a discount uh, relative to, you know, the, basically the best of breed kinds of names, which would include the two that you mentioned, Chevron and Exxon. Yeah.
1: I'll tell you one thing, Guy. I mean, the parlor game of what Berkshire's up to Mm -hmm. is all over the street. No question. Listen,
3: everybody ran into this stock in the fall. I think it got up to $75 on the back of exactly that. It's traded. I think it was a $57 stock a couple weeks ago. Back on its source. $70 price target now at Cowan. I think it makes sense. But all these energy stocks, despite the fact that crude was just $65 a week ago, have held in there. Exxon Mobil's within $7 of an all-time high. Valero, every time they knock it down, gets off the mat. There's something going on in the energy space. Along with we talked about home builders, we talked about restaurants, some of these other names. Well it's same sneaky. things on in energy.
2: It, it's sneaky because uh, the companies are different than the underlying. and, and the, the companies themselves will tell you they don't want to see 120 oil. Um, and so everything from both you know the windfall taxes that fall on oil companies or don't, um, but to the fact that these companies are run better. So we've just gotten through an earnings season with the energy and they reported later in the season where every one of these it's like a, it's like a contest to outdo each other on payout ratios and free cash flow generation <laughs> and debt pay down. debt pay down and free cash flow. Think about that in the environment we're in. Why do you think they're outperforming? Yeah, that's a great point. Mike, thanks. Uh, Mike
1: Cope. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show Friday, 530 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up, forget March madness. We're talking March munchies. The restaurant stocks bucking this month's downtrend when fast money comes back in two. Don't miss CNBC's healthy returns tomorrow. Hear about the latest in healthcare investment opportunities from the top leaders in the industry. You can scan the QR code or register to visit CNBCevents.com. Let's turn to one last market bright spot, and that's restaurant stocks bucking the March malaise, showing strength even as the rest of the market looks for direction. Kate Rogers joins us with some details tonight. Hey, Kate.
8: Hey, Carl, as you said, we've seen some continued resilience from a few of the big names in the restaurant sector in the month of March. McDonald's nearly 2 percent off of its all-time high Uh, last notched in November 2022. This is a name that's historically done well in downturns in the past due to its price point for consumers. Yum! Brands, its competitor, also 5 percent from its fresh highs. Chipotle is up 10 percent for the month, also pacing for its best quarter since Q2 of 2020. The company's maintained pricing power and consumers so far have stuck by it even through stubborn inflation. Pizza name Domino's also up 10 percent month to date on pace for its best month since November as well. Meanwhile, its counterpart, Papa John's, is down about 10 percent month to date. Wingstop also up 7 percent for the month, 33 percent year to date. That company had noted deflation in wing prices. You don't hear that often last year. And that has helped to bolster earnings in recent quarters. And finally, one casual name to take a look at, Darden, up over 7 percent month to date, also hitting a new 52-week high today thanks to its pricing strategies as well. Back over
1: to you. Some interesting charts, Kate. Thanks, uh, Kate Rogers. Jeff, let's trade it. What is this about people trading down from fast casual or is there something else behind it?
5: Well, I, I have a chart and I wanted to make the general point about restaurants that they are a lagging economic indicator. So I charted restaurants relative performance up against a leading economic indicator in manufacturing PMI. So you can see it follows it there, but with a lag. So we are just getting to the point now where you should start to see some pressure on restaurants relative performance. I think the intuition is, Restaurants are more correlated to the labor market. The labor market is the last shoe to drop. So when that shoe does drop, that's when you finally see pressure on the restaurant. So I think that that's what we have in front of us. You can delineate between say McDonald's and a Chipotle, things of that nature, but I think overall, I would be fading restaurant outperformance here in the near term.
1: Yeah, Uh, some argue that McDonald's breakfast is a proxy for employment uh, in this country, at least. Uh, Coming up next, your final trades.
5: Time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn, Jeff. Yeah, I think if you're looking to dip a toe in financials, Prudential is interesting here. It's at support. It's got that 6% dividend yield, so interesting risk-reward. All right, Tim. Carl's influence was felt on the set today, especially on the
2: commercial breaks, listening to The Smiths. Nice. Pretty cool. Um, McDonald's influence felt everywhere, and in fact, very defensive. Stay there, McDonald's.
4: Karen. Yes, XLE. I feel like it was nice today to have it outperform, but it's still got some ways to go to make up for some loss.
3: First time ever in CMC, the two Smiths fans of the United States actually on set <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Shout out to the Smiths. Uh, Palo Alto, P-A-A, excuse me, Pan American Silver, P-A-A-S, Carl. Sorry. Oh, yeah. yeah. Very different company. Yeah, much different. <laughs> yeah.
1: You guys always make it fun. Thanks, Thanks for having here, a visitor, uh, Jeff Guy, Tim Karen. Thanks for watching Fast Money. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts now.